Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, former President Trump awaits his third indictment of the year. Florida school districts this year will be teaching the benefits of slavery, Nick. I can't believe I just said that sentence out loud. Nick and I with more on that in a bit. Plus, later on the program, the one and only Jake Tapper joins the pod. He's the host of The Lead with Jake Tapper weekdays at 4 p.m. on CNN. And he's got an incredible new book out, All the Demons Are Here, New York Times bestselling author, extraordinaire, interviewer extraordinaire, Mr. Jake Tapper joins us in the next segment. A couple of housekeeping notes before I say hello to my co-host Nick Savary. A new episode of Nick's other podcast as he moonlights as a podcast host on another podcast here on Leon Media Network. Educate Us is out now. Join Nick, Stacy, and Patrice as this week. They're joined by the president and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, Nina Reese, to discuss the differences between charter and public schools. Nina's work in the education policy. She used to work for the White House and Department of Education. Some common misconceptions around charter schools and more new episodes of the Educate Us podcast available on LeonMediaNetwork.com or wherever you get your pods. Also, a new episode of Back Your Play with Q is out there as Q welcomes NFL insider Lloyd Vance to break down the Washington Commander's sale by Daniel Snyder to Sixers co-owner Josh Harris and Magic Johnson as a part of that group. What's next for the franchise and more new episodes of Back Your Play with Q available again on LeonMediaNetwork.com or listen to it wherever you get your podcast. So go check out those episodes. I'm excited to listen to, well, both of them, Nick. I mean, obviously, I, I love your show that you guys are doing over with Stacey and Patrice, but 
the sale of the commanders. I mean, we've done a segment on this show about the Washington commanders because, you know, the John Gruden emails that came from that commander's inquiry that was being done by investigators. And then uh, the coach of our team gets fired. So curious to check that out. Go check out both of those shows on LeonMediaNetwork.com, like I said, or listen to wherever you get your pods. Now I say hello to my actual co-host, Mr. Zaveri. Nick, my friend, how are you, buddy? What's going on? What's going on your way over there in Easton? Yeah, it, hot. <laughs> it's just oh, it's so hot. still the summer. We're now, I think, officially seven weeks before the NFL season starts and probably closer to six before college football. So, you know, I, I haven't, like many viewers, have an interesting relationship with watching football. We understand the risks of the game, but we also understand the entertainment value. And yeah, I, I do miss how it fills up my my Saturdays or Sundays. I say or because I usually have to choose between either because I my girls will kill me if I, I watch football both days nonstop. But um, we're good here. You know, we're right now just in the thick of summer and the girls have their different activities. Last week, I think, was the first time where I think I had the house to myself. Everyone had something That's going nice. on in the morning. And it's nice. it, yeah. I mean, you're again, you're on your way there. And most parents at some point encounter and when it happens, you ask yourself how you fill the space. I naturally filled it with work. Probably not my best idea, but you, you, you enjoy it. And that's going to be what our fall is going to be, you know, between daycare for the little one and the other, the other one going off to third grade. So yeah, that's, that's all everything on our end here. What about you? I mean, you mentioned hot, dude. There's no hotter place than Miami right now, you know, and by the way, shout out to meteorologist everywhere that I've been noticing across the TV sphere talking about this in, insane heat wave and these record high temperatures that are happening all over the place. I saw a great breakdown. I forget what channel it was on, but a meteorologist was kind of showing um, the way the cold fronts and, and the warm fronts are moving in across a map. And he did like a big thing around a globe. He brought a globe out, drew a big circle around to showcase it. But uh, I'm in that, I'm in that patch, man. I mean, there's a, it's 110 degrees out here. You know, you got the air pumping and it's not, it's not getting cold in the house. <laughs> like, so I'm, I'm dying out here, but summer's been good. It's been really relaxing. It's great to get back into the swing of doing this show. We're going to have some great episodes coming up. The Republican primaries are coming up August 23rd. I mentioned, you know, the former president is awaiting an indictment. We're going to be doing something special with a former uh, DOJ prosecutor on that front uh, when those charges end up happening. Not going to do it for this episode. Watch as we drop this episode, they'll announce some charges breaking, but um, we're going to focus on that in the coming weeks. As soon as we hear news about that real quick, before we get into our first segment, I wanted to shout out. We got, uh, you know, we get a lot of DMs from folks here and there. And obviously Jake Tappers in the next segment, we posted a teaser of Jake, you know, coming on the program last week, which Jake reshared to his audience and you get a lot of mutual followers. So a lot of people were sliding those DMS, Nick, uh, to say it politely, but, and I say it jokingly, but there was a few people that were like, I can't believe, you know, he posted this, you know, he just posted an interview with Dak Shepard. And then the next thing I see is, you know, your face with him. So pretty cool there, but I want to shout out a super fan of the show. Um, Sarah, that's, I, she, I think she's out in Orlando, the 407 girl, but shout out Sarah in Orlando who hit us up and was like, I love you guys' show. Um, thank you for an awesome podcast that you guys put on each and every week. So shout out to Sarah for checking out our show and hitting us up on social media. We respond people. You've seen, you've seen, we've done a segment on this show, you know, <laughs> breaking down comments that we get on social media. So shout out to her. Shout out to everybody that listens to the program. 
And let's get into what we do best, Nick, which is actually break down a topic. So for this first segment, I really wanted to deep dive into the news story that's being covered all over the place about Florida's 2023 social studies curriculum uh, lesson plans that kind of got out there, or maybe it was the state's academic standards that is available, by the way, you can go check it out at fldoe.org. That's obviously Florida Department of Education.org. But every news outlet has been covering this and talking about some of the things that are in this academic standard uh, documentation that's been reviewed by a bunch of different news outlets. And the biggest thing in it, obviously, is that now lessons for grade levels from sixth to eighth grade and those in high school in, you know, in the African-American studies portion will teach the causes, courses, and consequences of the slave trade in the colonies. But also there's a line in there about slavery being a personal benefit. And it included as like a benchmark clarification to a lesson that asked students to examine the various duties and trades performed by slaves. Now, for a little bit more of an explainer about this, let's take a listen to the way one of the news outlets was covering when this news broke, or at least when the outlet started publishing a little bit more of what the, the Florida Department of Education put on their site. Take a listen to this. Those attacks reached new heights this week when the Florida Department of Education released shocking new guidelines on how U.S. history, particularly around racial violence, is taught. Florida middle school students will now be taught that slavery gave black people a personal benefit because they developed beneficial job skills. High school students will now be taught that black people were also perpetrators of violence during white supremacist massacres, like the one in Rosewood, Florida in 1923, when a white mob destroyed the rural black town and murdered many of its residents. The state's education department, if you can even call it that, is doing this in a public school system where 64% of its students are people of color. So that was Joy Reid there. You can check out the readout on MSNBC uh, weeknights at 7 p.m. Um, I wanted to mention, though, again, and I want to emphasize this, and one of the things that we always do here is read it for yourself, right, Nick? FLDOE.org. You can search Florida State Academic Standards for Social Studies for 2023. The document's about 216 pages. And within there, it goes into you know, uh, in depth of what is going to be covered this year from African-American history, civics and government, Holocaust education, financial literacy. Funny enough, the Educate Us podcast will have an episode on financial literacy, uh, American history, world history, humanities, psychology, geography. Like this is everything that's encompassed. And so it's a small section that's within there where there was some wording relating to you know, slavery. And, and let's, let's be honest, revisionist history about the benefits of slavery. I mean, that's not a, come on, give me a break. Like there is no benefit to slavery. Right. Um, so we're going to get into Nick, the education side of this. Uh, but first I want to play a clip from governor DeSantis, who was asked about this at a recent press conference that he had and a reporter just basically read word for word parts of the document that I'm referencing here that, that you can go check out at fldoe.org. And I want you to take a listen to his response about this. Take a listen. Clarification on one thing within the policy. It says instruction includes how slaves develop skills, which in some instances, instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Could you just explain? Well, that? you should talk to them about it. I mean, I didn't do it and I wasn't involved What's in it. Um, but I think um, I think what they're doing is I think that they're probably going to show um, some of the folks that eventually parlayed 
uh, you know, being a blacksmith into, into doing things later, later in life. Um, but the reality is all of that is rooted in whatever is factual. They listed everything out. And if you have any questions about it, just ask the Department of Education. You can talk about those folks. But, I mean, these were scholars who put that together. It was not anything that was, um, that was done politically. Not anything that was done politically, Nick. Okay. Line that we're going to come back to in a second. Um, like I mentioned, this document is about 216 pages. If you go into uh, page eight of the document, section 9-12 is where the African-American history strand is being covered. So that's where it kind of lays out all of the different courses that are going to be covered around African-American studies, slavery, examining the condition of slavery as it existed in Africa, Asia, the Americas, and Europe prior to 1619. So there's a bunch within this document. And again, folks are focusing in on a few subsections within this document, which I encourage everybody to go check out at fldoe.org. I can't stress that enough because the biggest thing that we want to impart on people on this show is hey, you can listen to us. You can listen to the way outlets are covering this, but you really need to read it for yourself to see if this is something, and I say this as a Florida citizen, if this is something that's truly going to affect my kids that are going into school, that are going to learn about the actual history of this country, right? And like how this country was founded on the back of slavery. Like, let's be honest about a lot of this. And so if you truly are in an uproar right now, or even if you're like, you know what, this is being overblown, I encourage all of you to go out there and go check out that document, fldoe.org. Last thing I wanted to play, Nick, before I get your reaction on some of this, we've kind of highlighted a little bit of it. I know you're going to go into it a little bit more in depth as I turn to you for the education expertise, but the way this is being covered, you heard from MSNBC with Joy Reid there. You heard Governor DeSantis being asked a question about it himself. But the other part of this is now the way it's being covered on the right, specifically around Fox News is new, you know, uh, OAN, uh, Newsmax, the way they're covering this, because Kamala Harris came out about this and said, you know, obviously this is wrong. Governor DeSantis is using this in terms of political points, which we're going to get into in the argument in a second. And so Fox's primetime show, eight o'clock, Jesse Waters, he's been the subject matter of, uh, of you and I and in previous segments and stuff like that. He said this recently on his show about the policy because he had Governor DeSantis on before he had him on. He said this. No one is arguing slaves benefited from slavery. No one is saying that. It's not true. They're teaching how black people developed skills during slavery in some instances that could be applied for their own personal benefit. He said that with a straight face and a long pause. I want to clarify that there was a really long pause after that, maybe about five seconds, which in TV time could feel like 10 minutes. Nick, I'm going to turn to you now because, again, I'm a Florida resident. I'm a Florida voter. Um, I've been on other political podcasts, and we've talked about Governor Ron DeSantis's run for presidency. And I was thinking about this today as you and I are preparing for this segment. I think a lot of the things that DeSantis does is only because he's running for president. I truly believe that. I think that he would not be doing some of these things if he wasn't running for president, if he wasn't trying to siphon off some of the folks that are voting for the former president of the United States. Currently, he's behind by 35 plus points in the GOP primaries, just from different polls that have been done nationally, straw polls that were done at CPAC. 
He's not carrying any weight in the Republican Party right now. And the big donors that have gotten behind him early on from David Sachs and Elon Musk and others are really starting to question if this guy is the guy to actually defeat him. And there's going to be seven Republican candidates up there on the debate stage that have all qualified to try to take out the former president and become the nominee, excuse me, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, um, and then obviously Trump DeSantis. And I just don't see how any of them, first off, you know, unseat Donald Trump and the stronghold that he has on in his back pocket. Let's be honest, you know, 35, 40 percent of folks that are from the, not only the GOP, but from the national electorate that he has in his back pocket that are going to go to bat for him. And I just don't see him unseating it. And, and it, I think it feeds into the policy part of this. Because I think a lot of the things that he's doing, the television interviews that he's done, talking about he's going to attack Bud Light and some type of civil litigation, the stuff that he's done with Disney, I think everything has been uh, at this core of like fighting these issues that are not real, but they carry weight with the national audience maybe and could sway some voters his way and don't really have the biggest profound effect on Floridians. And now the Disney stuff is a little bit different because Disney is the largest employer of, of folks down here in the state. But the Bud Light thing and, and some of these other stuff that is playing out, I, I don't think any of this stuff would be happening if this guy wasn't running for president of the United States. What do you make of the policy first off? You've had a chance to kind of read the curriculum now. Like, what are some things that are sitting with you? And then the way the media has been covering this, I played you know, a left-leaning organization, let's be honest, and then we played a right-leaning organization and the way they're covering it. And what do you make of what DeSantis said, too, in the press? Yeah, I mean, as far as Governor DeSantis is, like, the most glaring things about the state are what you talked about. I mean, just rising temperatures. Um, the insurance ones are really interesting when like, you hear enough about Like, insurance companies constantly leave the state of Florida. That seems like a far greater issue than whatever Bud Light is standing for. Um, and as far as the battles with Disney... Yeah, I don't understand why a Republican governor would go after the largest employer, you know, for a party that tends to say that they're pro-business. Ron DeSantis may be the most anti-business candidate of the seven people that are going to take the stage in, in August. You know, as far as the education side of it, I mean, the first thing I'm going to bring up is, you know, DeSantis trying to evade the question by saying, well, you know, that's being done by other people. Folks, let's understand something. The, the Department of Education in Florida is constructed by the governor. You, know, you don't have a job there unless it's coming from the from the commissioner. So, you know, the head of the Florida Department of Ed is someone that DeSantis chose. These are not publicly elected positions. I mean, as far as I know. So this is entirely falling on DeSantis. Now, just getting to the standard itself, I'm in the process of reading through it. I have been starting to skim. I particularly wanted to see the language of the standard. Because just from a journalistic standpoint or just from a from the standpoint of fairness, it was very easy for Joy Reid, Jesse Waters, people, Washington Post, all these folks in the media that DeSantis says something, something's education related. And a lot of narratives start to form about that really fall into political lines. And I want to cut through all that. Obviously, that's something that we do on our other show at you know Educate you know, US. But, you know. For the sake of this conversation here, I simply wanted to just say, well, let me just start reading through the standards and just make heads or tails of it. In general, when I read the standards for Florida social studies, I didn't find a lot of it to be objectionable. 
you know, and as I was reading through it, this particular one stood out. Now, this is coded for Social Studies 68A.A uh, .A, um, 2.3. It's on page, it looks like page six um, in terms of like by chapters and stuff. So I'm giving that all because that's a place you may want to go jump to. You can just do a quick you know, document search and go to that particular standard and read for yourself. Now, it reads as follows. Examine the various duties and trades performed by slaves, e.g. agricultural work, painting, carpentry, tailoring, domestic service, blacksmithing, transportation. And then this interesting benchmark clarification, which reads, instruction includes how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. And it's the personal benefit part that obviously is setting people off. And when I read it, it also seemed weird too, because as I was reading the other standards, there wasn't, there really wasn't a reference to how these different things, particularly the institution of slavery, would benefit the victims of slavery. So the first question I would ask is, why try and add any benefit to the institution of slavery? Now, to what Jesse Waters had said a moment ago, like that this is not trying to say that slavery was something good or beneficial. It still kind of is. You know, when you try to say that people coming out of an atrocity develop skills that could potentially help them in the future, what you're doing is minimizing what the act was. If we're going to have a conversation about the institution of slavery, let's just go with the facts for a moment. Simply put, Africans were brought over to provide free labor. As individuals, they were sold, and as a result, families were broken. Women were raped, and slaves were forbidden to read and or become educated. Nothing I just said is false. But when you say that folks develop skills that could be used for their personal benefit, you start to you start to walk the line of an opinion because the word benefit is the one that really stood out to me. Because if we're going to talk about the legacy of slavery, basically when you talk about things that slaves develop, skills that they, they, they developed that could be used. First off, I want to just bring up the important detail that we can keep calling them slaves, yes, but they're human beings. Specifically, they're, Af they're Africans, African-Americans. We're talking about black people that provided free labor with no restitution that were sim that it was an atrocity. It's an inhuman act. And there is no way to say that people came out of that you know, in some way or form that you know, helped them you know, further on in life. First off, there's an assumption here that you know, these people didn't have these skills before they were brought over as slaves. There's this idea that, you know, these people are empty vessels, that they don't have these skills. It's somehow, you know, working in the fields or in the house, they learn these things, which is once again, a form of white supremacy, because we're assuming that these, you know, and I'll use the word savages. It's the word we used to, you know, that used to come up often when we talked about non-white people in, in terms of colonization, that these folks don't have these abilities, that they developed them over the course of slavery. That's nonsense. We don't know that for a fact. There was certainly farming happening in Africa. There were certainly other trades going on. At one point, Africa was, as a, as a continent, further ahead uh, in terms of development than in terms of knowledge than Europe. That's simply a fact. So to assume that these people are brought over unskilled and they develop skills through the course of providing free labor is debatable at best. At the same time, if we're going to talk about the idea of benefit, then you also have to talk about, well, when did that benefit actually, quote unquote benefit, take actually come into place? Because after slavery was abolished, you know, with the 13th Amendment in 18, you know, after 1865 and the Civil War is over, 
Well, at what point did Africans have the opportunity to really put those skills that they may or may not have learned through the institution of slavery into a way that was profitable to them? Well, we could talk about the moments of profitability. We could talk about Black Wall Street, which, by the way, the standards in Florida do acknowledge that one of the addendums was that it is helpful or you can, it should be talked about in terms of what happened in Tulsa. I'll also offer the Colfax massacre here too, that Rosewood, like these things come up, which was good to hear. Like just the fact that Tulsa is being talked about more these days in a socialist curriculum is important. That said, I think it's important to say that, you know, these skills that are developed again, may or may not have been developed, you know, um, in the United States. Well, when did it actually take effect for them in a way that was profitable? Because very shortly after slavery was abolished, there were other ways to find, to continue to dehumanize black people. The onset of the Ku Klux Klan. I just mentioned Tulsa, obviously you have sharecropping, all these different economic institutions that take place to still make it hard for a black person to truly be free. So if we're going to have this conversation about skills they could use for their personal benefit, then you also have to talk about the fact that, well, when did that benefit actually take place? Because as we all know, 40 acres and a mule was a myth at best in terms of what was actually provided to slaves, you know, after the, after the institution um, ended. And it's, it left me with a lot of questions, but that felt like a very debatable point. You know, what people are talking about in terms of, you know, just the, the anger and outrage of it. You know, when I read it just clinically, my my reaction is that that's a hard thing for me as an educator to try to explain to people that, well, in the midst of this atrocity, they did learn something that they could use in the future. And again, the point I'm bringing up, my first point was, well, do you know that they learned it here? And more importantly, we know for a fact that these skills were far harder to become profitable because as a African-American in this country, even after the institution of slavery was abolished, there were still efforts in forms of white supremacy to make it difficult for black people to thrive in this country. And hence the conversation still to this day about reparations. One of the things I'm thinking about, and you mentioned as a former educator, is who is that teacher that now would be going out there and actually seeing this and saying, yeah, I got to teach the benefits of, of this. I just don't know who is that teacher that would be going out there doing this. And the reason I bring that up is because uh, Marvin Dunn, who's a professor uh, over at Florida International University, which is actually two miles from my house, um, he wrote a book, uh, History of Florida Through the Through Black Eyes. And he said and recently in a Washington Post article that DeSantis would gain no political advantage from his argument because... And, I, and it's quoting from the uh, article, it is so outrageous that people are going to reject it. He says, these children know in their hearts and minds that slavery was evil. He's like, one of the main things about slavery, beyond the physical damage that it did to so many generations, was that it actually prevented people from becoming what they could become. So what if you became a carpenter or a blacksmith or a good maid? Your chances of that were not determined by you. It was determined by somebody else. That's not a rationalization for enslavement. And when I heard that, I was like, yes, exactly. Who? These are one of those things where I read this and I saw the article. And like I said, we, we, we figured we were going to talk about this in our first segment. And it's like, did we need to include this? Like you're focusing on the wrong thing that's broken. The thing that's broken in uh, America, at least from the education system, and I know you guys get into it a lot on the pod, is 
some things are left out. The Tulsa massacre is something that I never learned, you know, in African-American studies or even was that course available to me at the high school level. It wasn't until you and I got to college where that type of course was available to me. And, and we've had professors at universities come on this program and say the critical thinking aspect of this is that we don't teach kids to be critical thinkers until they get to college, until they're, you know, 18 or so. And by then, you know, and in your formative years, especially as you're going through high school, you're not learning about some of these things. So I appreciate you kind of breaking down the education part of this and what to look for. And like I said, oh, you want to add one more point? Yes, Mr. Severa, you don't got to raise your hand. It's just you and I, <laughs> you know, I can see you. You know, something I also think of as I'm skimming through is I'm looking also at the, the Holocaust education strand. You know, in these standards and right. you know what I'm seeing so far, interestingly, never talks about the the time in um, concentration camps, death camps, eventually, where there was anything of benefit. And again, labor had taken place before genocide, but it's not written here that Jewish people in the camps, along with others, benefited in any way. And that's the part that I, it was a theory I was working off of before I started reading this. I was like, well, are they, are we going to do something similar? And we didn't. And that's the part I find alarming of many is that this idea that we try to find ways to take the institution of slavery and point it to something less than, less than the human atrocity, less than the complete be all end all in the United States of America of, one of the most inhumane things we've we've ever done as a country but when we look at another atrocity we don't try to find any positives to it um and what you draw your own conclusions from that but all i will say is as i'm reading this about the holocaust education strand i'm not seeing any reference that you know there was something positive about being in these death camps right. and that's i'll simply leave it there very well said. Um, go, like I said, go check out the, all of this documentation, fldoe.org. You can read it there. Check it out. Email us, can we please talk podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have a, you know, a question or a comment or even a take on this. You live in Florida, hit us up. We'd love to learn a little bit more about our audience out there that's listening to this stuff. All right. When we come back after the break, so excited to talk to him. It was one of, in my opinion, and Nick, I'll speak for you. I think one of the best interviews we've done so far on this program. We've been out for a few years now, but the one and only Jake Tapper, host of The Lead with Jake Tapper every afternoon at 4 p.m. on CNN. Catch him on State of the Union Sundays at 9 a.m. He's got a great new book out. All the demons are here. Jake Tapper, when we come back after the break. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. Kitcaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. Quick break from our pod to tell you about a new pod at Fresh Roasted Coffee. Envy Pods. So if you go to freshroastedcoffee.com, my partner's shaking his head. That's a good transition. What are you? Are you kidding me? It was good. No, I shook my head. I was like, that's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Because you. You, I, I saw this picture earlier. I was like, I saw, I saw what you're doing. That's right. It is a fantastic transition, Nick, if I do say so myself. Listen, the new Envy Pods over at our partners at Fresh Roasted Coffee. These pods are environmentally safe. They are compostable. And let me tell you something. When you open these individually wrapped pods, Nick, they smell absolutely delicious. You can check out these new pods from our sponsors over at freshroastedcoffee.com and enter in the promo code, new promo code, can we please get 20, all one word, and the number 20, can we please get 20 for 20% off your purchase. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right, Nick, what do these names have in common? Real quick, okay? Allen Iverson, Benjamin Franklin, Michael Jack Schmidt, Harry Callis, and Rocky Balboa. I would say they're all Philly people. You would be correct. And we have another Philly person that's going to be hopping on the podcast with us here. He is the host of one of my favorite shows in the afternoon on CNN at 4 p.m., The Lead with Jake Tapper. But he's also here to promote his new book, which you can see over my right shoulder if you're watching on YouTube. And that is All the Demons Are Here. New York Times bestselling author Jake Tapper joins us. Jake, Mike, and Nick, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. It's great to be with a couple of Jersey boys. How are you doing? Oh, there we go. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, it's, been, it's been fun to watch your career uh, evolve. And also this other side project that you tend to do, Jake, where you've written three books. All of them are doing incredibly well. I've been watching you on this book tour. And one of the things that has always made me laugh has been, People saying to Jake Tapper, where do you find the time? How do you write a book as if you can't walk and chew gum? Are you shocked by how many questions you've gotten from Whoopi Goldberg to Conan O'Brien about how, where do you find the time to do your day job, save democracy, interview, you know, <laughs> Mr. Zelensky from Ukraine, and then also write a, a best-selling thriller? No, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it is, a, a, it, I get asked it a lot. Um, and mainly like in my normal life, not in interviews, people really are curious. And I think one of the, the reasons people ask is because everybody thinks that they have in them the great American novel. And they might, they really might. The difference is that I actually sit down and, and try to write it, even though I do have this full-time job and a family. And um, so I think that's, that is what is at the root of it is because a lot of people are capable of writing a great book. Um, and I and I think a lot of people have great stories to tell. But the often the difference is just doing the work. 
and making yourself do the work. So it, 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 I think that's fundamentally what's behind the question is people thinking, God, I can write a, I, I should write a book, but I never find that I have enough time. How, how, how does he have enough time to do it? Advice for the people out there that have always wanted to start something. I always say do or do not. There is no try to quote Yoda. Uh, let's get into the book, Jake, because this is the third installment of the book. I told you off air that you know, I'm not a big fiction guy like you. I'm very into biographies, documentaries, and things like that. But I read this book and the parallels between things that happened in the 70s in the political arena and what's happening now. You wrote such a great job around these fictitious family, the martyr family, and Ike and Lucy specifically as the subject matters in this book. And, you know, both of them are going through different career trajectories. One's a reporter at a burgeoning paper. The other one is with Evil Knievel doing stunts and motorcycle. Uh, take our audience a little bit inside this book and the third installment in the series overall. So the series um, started, I wrote a book called The Hellfire Club. It came out in 2018. And that was about Charlie Martyr, uh, a young congressman kind of swept up into Joe McCarthy's Washington, D.C., uh, along with his wife, uh, Margaret, a zoologist. Um, the, the next book uh, was called The Devil May Dance. It came out in 2021. And that book was about Charlie and Margaret go to Hollywood and investigate to see if Sinatra is actually mobbed up or not. And that book was more, there's some politics in it um, in terms of like whether or not, uh, it was about in some ways when it comes to politics, the people you get in bed with to become a politician. Uh, but that was a lot about Hollywood and a lot about, uh, you know, making movies and, and Sinatra and the Rat Pack and that sort of thing. Um, this book takes place in 1977. And it's, as you noted, it's Ike and Lucy. Ike's an AWOL Marine. And Lucy is uh, a, an aspiring journalist who she ends up working on a new tabloid newspaper being started in Washington, D.C. by a Rupert Murdoch-esque character who comes to the United States to, to start a media empire. And she's on one level, it's a, it's a whodunit because she's covering a serial killer and she's trying to figure out who the serial killer is. On another level, it's about uh, tabloid, the tabloidization of, of American media uh, and decisions that and compromises that we all make uh, when we enter careers. Uh, Ike's story is a little bit wilder. As you know, he's on the pit crew of Evil Knievel. And his story is about this great charismatic man uh, who's a horrible person. And it's about followers and leaders um, without giving too much of the plot away, evil can evil in this fictitious uh, construct uh, runs for president uh, and Ike and, and other people follow him across the country as he goes to, to let to have his voice be heard in Washington. So to a degree, it was also that that one is also about um, followers, leaders, mobs, demagogues and that sort of thing. But but both of them are also, um, you know, thrillers. Both both stories are thrillers. They and they come together at the beginning of the book, in the middle of the book. And then at the end, there's a big splashy ending where the parents are involved as well. Jake, it's you have to notice that all three books have a title in reference to hell or, or evil. <laughs> What's the role? I mean, you just talked about like sort of different spheres where evil may play a role. Is Was that a thematic choice or is this a case of the presence of evil isn't exactly what we see, but it appears in different places within the American experience or, or some other version of that? It, it's definitely the latter, but not just about the American experience, just about, about um, 
the human experience. The first one is called the Hellfire Club because there was actually a Hellfire Club in the UK in the 18th century. Uh, it was this debauched sex club in the outskirts of London that Benjamin Franklin visited when he went there. People can look it up. There, there, there are a couple books written about it. About it. It was really kind of like a just a place for orgies and and you know debauchery, as I say, uh, and. The first book talks about the Hellfire Club, and one of the conceits of it is, what if, what if that help? What if that group of elites in England in the 18th century, what if there was an American version that came over with Benjamin Franklin or whatever, and like there was an American version today, and what would they be doing other than orgies? And it's about secret societies and conspiracies. The next book, I decided to call The Devil May Dance. Um, because the next book is about, I told you it's about who you get into bed with when you're in politics. Or I mean, part of it is about the Kennedys getting into bed with Sinatra, Sinatra getting into bed with the mob. It's about the you know, about about those kinds of um, it's about dancing with the devil. It's about like what what happens to you when you get into a relationship with with people of lower moral value than you, uh, for some reason, for some quid pro quo. And so Dancing with the Devil seemed like a good metaphor for that. And I called it The Devil May Dance because I, uh, Dancing with the Devil was too obvious. And I, I wanted, I created a fake uh, Sinatra song called The Devil May Dance. And so by then, so that's, that's two songs with the hell, uh, two titles with the hell theme. And so I kind of had to do uh, something devil related. I originally was going to call this book Pitchfork Island, which is a place in the book uh, that where the climax of the book takes place, Pitchfork Island. Um, but then I came up with All the Demons Are Here because I was watching The Tempest, the movie The Tempest. And there's a line in the movie when they're talking about how horrible everything is at the very beginning of the movie. There's a typhoon and a shipwreck and the, and the like. And one of the characters said, hell is empty and all the devils are here. So I just changed it to demons. And um, that's where it came from. But but a lot of the book is about since they're I mean all of them are thrillers and what is a worse uh, bad guy to evoke than the devil and uh, you know pure evil and and uh, so in some ways they're all um, it's all about just the human experience and 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 bad people and confrontations with evil. It's the first time, by the way, on this book tour I've been asked that question. So good job. Well, there we go. And by the way, I was going to do my Trump impression for you next because you said quid pro quo. And I got to say, there was no quid pro quo. Uh, Jake, listen, that, was, that was pretty good. Thank you. appreciate that. <laughs> I, I copied uh, Matt Friend. But uh, I do want to ask you because and we're going to draw a bunch of different parallels from the book to your present job, which you just left a few minutes ago and finishing up the lead with Jake Tapper. But there was a part in the book. I wrote this down every time I read something. I was like, I got to ask Jake this because there's a part of the Republican caucus that wanted Nixon back. And there's folks right. claiming it was a liberal prod against Nixon. And I said, where the hell have I seen that before? <laughs> you, you know, you're writing this book and you're putting these characters into this semi-fictitious environment. Like at any point when you were writing this, were you drawing on things that are happening right now? And, and at any point where you're like, boy, this country has not changed one bit that this stuff was happening. You know, so they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And when I go back and do the research for these novels, you really hear the rhyming today. And 
you know, whether it was Joe McCarthy for the first book and like he's out there lying and smearing people and very few Republicans are brave enough to condemn him. Um, or the sexism in Hollywood in the second book. Um, or uh, the two main plots in this book, one of which is Evil Knievel is this kind of like larger than life, shoot from the hip, showman, salesman, able to get media attention, famous for being famous, uh, and the parallels with Donald Trump which are just there. I mean, they're not, I didn't make them up. I mean, I goosed them in the book to make, you know, to have him run for president, but like on earth too, you know, evil Knievel could have run for president and it would have been just as credible as any other celebrity running for president, including Donald Trump. Um, and then obviously the rise of tabloid journalism was in 1977. That's the year of the son of Sam murders. And that's when the New York Post and the New York Daily News really came to prominence. There were just so many things going on in 1977 that reminded me of today. There was such a deep mistrust of, of the government and, and authority uh, because it was post-Watergate, post-Vietnam War. And we see that again today. There is uh, you know, a bunch of soldiers dealing with exposure to toxins in the war. We have that today with burn pit victims. Obviously, back then it was Agent Orange. And then uh, doing the research for this book, I listened to this great podcast by Slate uh, called, uh, I think it's called One Year. They do, they pick a year and they and they just do seven or eight different things that happen in that year for the seven or eight episodes. And one of the things they did, one of the topics they focused on was uh, a thing called Laetrile, which was this fake cure for cancer um, that uh, people were obsessed with. And the health health authorities in the U.S., the CDC and others, would not approve of its use because they said it's it's not going to cure. It doesn't cure cancer. Like you're just going to you're you're going to kill yourself by refusing to do chemo and doing this instead. But politicians and the public were obsessed with this. Why not let us do this? You have to let us do this. Um, and it was a real horrible story there this one little boy who had cancer and his parents just didn't want to subject him to chemo and they wanted him to take laetrile and you know they went to mexico where laetrile was uh prevalent and legal and that little boy died there and and uh it's also that's where steve mcqueen you guys probably are steve mcqueen fans steve mcqueen died in mexico pursuing a cure for cancer based on laetrile and uh, anyway, that just reminded me so much of all these fights and debates we heard uh, during COVID about, you know, the government is hiding this from us and they don't want like, they don't want us to know about the real cure for COVID. It's ivermectin or, you know, whatever. It's just like, why, why do you think the government would hide that? Like, I don't even understand. But it reminded me, it was so evocative of the Leotril debate that I've I, I built that up in it. So, yeah, I mean, the rhyming is just there. You just have to look, know where to look for it. Jake, as I'm reminded of, you mentioned 1977, obviously Jonathan Mahler's book comes up off in the Bronx is burning. And your book's obviously more global in terms of where we are in the late 70s. And obviously, you know, just for you personally, not much, not really that old at that point, obviously. I was eight, yeah. Right. So is was the book way a way of you for me to sort of step back and trying to make sense of a time that may have been somewhat formative for you, but, but for, for our country as just a period of events that seems to 
like in isolation seem like you know individual things, but collectively seem to tell a larger story of where we were at the time. I, you know, I don't remember much of 1977. I don't know what you guys remember from when you were eight years old, but the, what I remember is, um, I remember starting to be interested in baseball. I remember Elvis dying. I remember disco um, because we had, you know, in grade school, uh, we had, you know, disco parties or maybe we had like maybe one, but I remember it. Um, I remember, you know, I remember Star Wars coming out. I remember Saturday Night Fever coming out and then they put it out again. And except they took out all the the dirty stuff and made it PG. Um, But I don't really remember a ton. You know, I just don't. So this was... uh, I mean, I knew I was going to set my next book in the 70s because I'd done the 50s and the 60s. I was going to skip it, but somebody said, no, no, because I thought it was lame, the 70s. It had, the 70s has a reputation for being a lame decade. It's actually quite a fascinating de- decade and very wild. I mean, it really, in terms of sex, drugs, and and rock and roll, uh, if you include disco to be rock and roll, um, there was a lot more of it in the 70s and the 60s. And it was just fascinating diving into it. And... It started um, with the the just trying to figure out what year to do, and 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 thinking like, well, I want to have a serial killer be part of the plot. Summer of Sam is nineteen seventy seven, so that's a that's a good year for it to take place. And then I was um, hanging out with a friend who's obsessed with Evil Can Evil, and uh, I was I just never. I have, he has a fishing lodge in Idaho, and I, I, I was not interested in Evil Knievel when I was a kid. For some reason, that just passed me by. I guess I didn't watch ABC Wide World of Sports, and he was a big figure on ABC Wide World of Sports. So maybe if I'd watched that as a kid, uh, that would have that piqued my interest. But, I mean, I remember the lunch boxes, and I remember the action figure and the motorcycle that you could wind up and have a few stunts and stuff. So, anyway, my friend, it was like, you, you really should think about because I was like, what, what's, what gives? Because he had, he had all this Evil Knievel stuff in his lodge. Evil Knievel pinball machine, autographed photos, cover of Sports Illustrated, cover of Rolling Stone. I said, what, you know, what is your deal with this guy? Because to me, he just like, he was just like a goon. Um, I never really got it. But he's like, oh, no, you're missing out. This is a great American character. This is, a, you need to, and he recommended this documentary called Being Evil that Johnny Knoxville produced. And uh, it really was a great documentary. And it really, it really shows his impact on the culture, like all the all the extreme sports stuff, all the, you know, Tony Hawk, all these guys, Dak Shepard, Johnny Knoxville, all of them were hugely influenced by him. Uh, any anything you said, BMX bike guys, I mean, all these guys were, he, you know, he took fringe stunt sports into the mainstream, and uh, and he was this larger than life character. And really interesting, and and like I said, rather Trump-esque, not in a negative way, just like in this like showman way. Uh, you know, every politician would love to have some of that. Um, so it really was just an education for me. Jake, you know, one of the things you're talking to two journalism grads from Rutgers, so I'm really big on the Lucy character trajectory because as she's going through different things with respect to reporting on this homicide that happened in Manassas and one that happened earlier, a few years prior, she's going back and forth with her editor about what to actually print because they're changing parts of her story. I'm paraphrasing a lot of it because I don't want to give it away for the folks. You can go order it wherever books are sold. But um, the big dilemmas that Lucy is having and the arguments that she's having with Harry, her editor, in the book, how much of Jake Tapper's day job crosses over into this book because 
you know, you just did a story maybe five minutes ago. I was watching the lead and it's a new update on what the special counsel is doing with respect to Donald Trump. And you want to make sure you're putting out the accurate information. As she says, I want it to be true. I believe she says, I don't want it to be, you know, sexed up. Right. As, as Harry's like, we need to sex this headline up a little bit more. But how much of when you were writing this, are you sitting there saying, boy, some of these things tend to play out in newsrooms that I'm in right now. And it, it, I'm fighting this battle between not sexing it up and just giving people the actual news and information that they need. Um, it's a great question. The answer is that not at all for me uh, is the truth. Um, in fact, I'm I'm one that's usually arguing that CNN needs to sex, sex things up a little bit more, not sex it up. But I'm usually arguing like um, you're burying the lead. You know, like this is this is the most important thing, and this should be, you know, it it should be higher or whatever. Not with my staff, but if I'm reading a, a digital story. And the truth of the matter is, is that I've been lucky throughout my career to have been uh, with editors who made me better, and um, and news desks that kept me on the straight and narrow. Um, but I see uh, Fox, and I read tabloids. And it's not difficult to imagine how it happens. Um, and it's not difficult to imagine, you know, having um, having been in the debates about, look, this, this is a push and pull uh, that any journalist is familiar with, delivering the accurate information and wanting people to read the story. And what's the best way to pull people in while also staying honest and, and true? Now, if you work for you know, the financial times, maybe, maybe you, maybe you don't care as much because you're just like, we're just giving, or the economist is a better example. We're just giving people bread and butter. That's fine. But um, for anyone, including the associated press, generally speaking, you need like, you want a sexy lead. You want something that grabs people, et cetera, et cetera. So, and that debate, by the way, is probably one that's common for people in all sorts of walks of life, not just journalism. Um, you know, the debate between flash and substance. Um, so, that that is that is a, a debate and a discussion that I'm I'm used to. I'm not used to having it on the tabloid level, but it was. It, but again, it's not difficult to discern because I I see the, the media is so much more tabloidy today. Not just the New York Post and Fox, but like everything because it's such a competition for eyeballs that that you, people are you know they call it whether you call it clickbait or or whatever like. You're constantly always trying to get butts in the seat. Uh, and um, so I never experienced it the way Lucy does, but I was really honored. I didn't have the book event with Maggie Haberman, the Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times reporter, but she had previously worked for the New York Daily News and the New York Post. And she was asking me, like, did I talk to tabloid reporters because it was so true to life? And I was like, no, I just made it up. I mean, I just made it up, but it's really not that difficult to imagine how it happens. And obviously in my book, um, it happens worse than it could ever happen anywhere else. Um, just because uh, they basically, well, I don't, want, I don't want to spoil anything, but they really walk a line uh, and it really ends up having consequences. Like this is obviously book three, right? You know, we're four years ago, you know, this series kicks off. I mean, I'd say I'm using dates from a publishing standpoint. What's different about you as a writer, researcher, just your approach 
to to authorship? What or have there been any changes just over these four years from launching this novel to where these characters are? Uh, it's a great question. I think that um, I think the the um, well, first of all, this book is more ambitious as a writerly project. The first two books were in third person, so just describing what Charlie did, describing what Margaret did. This book, as you know, is written in first person with two different characters. So Ike tells a story in one chapter, and then Lucy tells a story in another chapter. So they're, they're, it's more ambitious that way, uh, both writing in first person and writing as two different characters and writing as a 22-year-old woman. Um, so, and and uh, I had some great editorial help uh, with that. Um, and uh, and like, for instance, I, I hired a motorcycle expert to re read, the, read the first draft because I don't know a thing about motorcycles and I wanted to make sure Ike in telling his story because he's a motorcycle expert and works for Evil Knievel who's a motorcycle expert and there are like three or four action scenes involving motorcycles and I wanted to make sure it read credibly to not just hit people like you two uh but like to motorcycle experts like I wanted to make sure that that was legit so and and I had a woman uh editor and she in addition to being a great editor also helped me write as Lucy. So that's that's one. Like I just got a little bit more ambitious. Two, I it's gotten easier for me to uh what Faulkner called kill your darlings. It, 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 editing. It, it's just gotten me, it's gotten easier. And I go go back and I wish I had uh edited more out of book one uh, at the Hellfire Club. I think I did a pretty good job in 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 book two, and and like a much even a better job in book three. The temptation when you write historical fiction is you find all these cool things, and then you want to share them with people because they're so cool and they made me so happy. And the um, I've gotten better at keeping it to my keeping it to myself if it doesn't advance the plot or if it if it isn't an obvious delight for a reader. Like I mean. You know, there's Star Wars is alluded to, Jaws is alluded to, Saturday Night Fever, I think, is alluded to, but they're not, you know, all these cool things that I learned about all three of those things, I, I didn't share because it would have distracted from the plot. Jake, you know, we recently, we, and by the way, I should preface this uh, as a former person who used to work for a Murdoch entity that is on 1200 Avenue, the Americas, Fox News. I was a former Fox News PA writer. And I'm asking you this because... Um, we recently had Mehdi Hassan on from MSNBC. Love Mehdi. And He's great. You and him and maybe a handful of other anchors tend to have this superpower that we asked him about, which is, and again, I've been in control rooms. I've been in the studios. You know, I'm miking people up, putting the IFB in the ear. It's very hard to juggle the producer in your ear, the countdown to break, and you're trying to ask a follow-up question to a politician or somebody. You just recently had something with Ron DeSantis. That's a different setting, right? Yeah. Um, what is your superpower, Jake, like how do you uh, prepare, take people inside a little bit of how the lead with Jake Tapper and State of the Union with Jake Tapper prepares for an interview with a member of Congress holding feet to fire, but also the juggling act that people don't see that is so hard with this little thing in the ear and people talking in it. And you've got to get a follow up question now and listen to the person respond in real time. So I don't think I have a superpower. Like, I mean, Mehdi wrote a book about how to win an argument, and I'm sure he could win any argument with me. Uh, and, you know, Mehdi 
is a grand inquisitor and i don't do the same thing that he does because i work for a different channel and I have a different kind of show i really admire the hell out of him um but but uh for instance my desantis interview was not the desantis interview Medi would have would have done Medi would have given him a, a grilling and a grueling and uh they never would have spoken ever again and i was doing an interview that was very different than that it was not supposed to be a last interview with ron desantis um I would say, and he's, I, I, again, he's, he's great. Um, I would say that I don't think I have a superpower. I, I, I think that if there is anything I hope that I'm good at in terms of what might distinguish me from other people is I hope that I have a certain, and this isn't to condemn anybody, but I hope I have a certain authenticity just as me. I am the same guy on TV as I am talking to you as I am in my car as I am when I go home like I it's the same obviously I project a little bit more when I'm on TV but as a general note um I I hope I'm asking the questions that people at home are like well what about this or what about that but in a way that shows that I've done some research but is an is accessible I I guess that's what I think I'm okay at um but again I don't I'm not Peter Parker. I don't I don't have any superpowers. Well, I get I gave you the superpower. Uh, so but before we let you go, Jake, because you just kind of funneled into the follow up there, uh, the cameras off. One of the big drawbacks of CNN plus not making it was you were going to do some content on there, which kind of showed yeah. Jake Tapper taking, you know, the shirt off and, and relaxing a little bit. Well, so the jacket, not the, the jacket. shirt. <laughs> okay, not the shirt, not the shirt. Sorry, sorry about that. I'm what's, wrong, get it? what's wrong with you? Yeah, my wrife will get a out of that. I'm 54. I don't know if anybody wants me to take my shirt off, but yeah, okay. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know what I meant, but uh, so take us a little bit inside what Jake Tapper is like off air because camera just turned off. You literally just recorded the lead a little while ago as we're doing this interview. And now you're about to go home. You got the drive yeah. home. You're going to relax. You're going to read. You listen to the podcast. What What is Jake Tapper like off camera Monday through Friday and on the weekends? So generally speaking, I would say I'm pretty much the same. I, I, I probably curse a little bit more, uh, uh, especially when I'm around like my college friends. Um, I probably have a much darker, sicker sense of humor than I would allow people to see on TV. Uh, but generally it's not that different. I mean, I'll go home tonight and then I'll hang out with my son. And if my daughter permits me, she's 15, I'll hang out with her a little bit. Uh, and then mainly I'll just sit down with my wife and we'll just talk about our days and, and we'll just, and honestly, we just try to make each other laugh. And, and, and that's really, that's really it. Um, and, uh, but I don't think it's, I don't think I'm that different. I really don't. I mean, again, the subject matters might be a little bit more twisted. Like I'll talk more about, um, darker, uh, jokes about my friends or, um, to their faces, of course, or more about pop culture. I'm, I'm much more into pop culture in my private life than I am on TV. We used to try to do cover pop culture more, um, but the audience didn't really like it uh, that much. They weren't really that interested. And it was kind of a surprise to me because we would try to do it through stories that were on the news. Like we interviewed um, Bradley Cooper when he was uh, playing uh, the American Sniper. We interviewed uh, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal when he uh, played a survivor of the Boston Marathon bombing, et cetera, et cetera. Generally speaking, our audiences don't don't want that from me. Uh, they don't want entertainment related stuff. I mean, maybe like a, a small feature here and there. So anyway, that's just a long way of saying that that 
uh, I'm much more into into pop culture uh, in my in my private life. I go home, I do not watch the news. I go home and I watch movies or TV or or read a book. Well, in between uh, hosting the lead with Jake Tapper, State of the Union Sundays, hanging out with Jennifer Aniston and Adam Scott at a party, he wrote this <laughs> incredible book. It's a New York Times bestselling book. All the demons are here. You can go get it wherever books are sold. Jake, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. And truly, as an admirer of yours, somebody who watches the lead every afternoon and watches State of the Union every other weekend when you're co-hosting with Dana Bash, I truly appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Continued success to you, sir. And please stay safe. Thank you so much. Uh, Mike and Nikki do a great show, and I really appreciate the time. You've been wonderful hosts. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. All right, our thank yous there to the one and only Jake Tapper, host of The Lead with Jake Tapper. Catch it Monday through Friday on CNN, 4 p.m. State of the Union, the Sunday show that he hosts at 9 a.m. He co-hosts with Dana Bash. And you can go check out his book, All the Demons Are Here. It's a New York Times bestselling book. You heard Jake talk a little bit there about. It's the third installment uh, in this series following this fictitious family. But I got to be honest, and I said to him off air, I said it on air, um, I don't I don't read fiction books. My wife is the fiction reader. I, I, I truly don't. Um, all the authors that people are seeing over my shoulder on YouTube, uh, not only are people have been on the show, but the subject matters are about, you know, real things, you know, like how uh, finance, you know, the uh, banks corrupt black America. Like that's one of the books, White Wall here, you know, Ellie Honig's book about Bill Barr corrupting the Justice Department, right, from somebody who used to work at the Justice Department. Like those are the kind of books that I'm into. But this book, no BS. The coolest thing that I loved about it was, and again, as a student of history and the 60s and 70s, and obviously this covers the time period of the 70s, like just a back and forth between the dichotomy of Lucy being a journalist for this paper that was owned by Max Lyon, who is a Murdoch you know, uh, equivalent, as he, as Jake mentioned, and I worked for a Murdoch entity, like it just, there was just so much there because she's trying to run this story and they're trying to sensationalize it and make it more sexy. And she's like, no, you're, you're changing my facts of the story. And then um, you get so much of the historical stuff with Nixon. Um, so you're going back and forth, you know, the evil Knievel stuff. Again, I wasn't an evil Knievel guy, just like Jake mentioned, but Takeaways for you of not only the interview in Jake's book, but like some of the things that Jake said there about the media currently right now and what he's doing in his day job to like not sensationalize things. It's one of the things that I appreciate about him. And it's one of the reasons why I continue to watch his show. And like we tell people here, diversify your news sources, uh, watch and read different outlets. And he's one of the guys I trust because the program is very news heavy. Here's the story. Here's the correspondent that's covering it. Here's a shooting that happened. Here's an expert that ran a police department, you know, adjacent to that city that's going to tell us what law enforcement would be doing right now. It's a lot of the similar things that we do. But what do you make of our interview with Jake and the book overall? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that was really enlightening was, you know, obviously prior to this conversation, 
like you, my you know, relationship, for lack of a better phrase, with Jake Tapper is just seeing him on television. So, you know, like anyone who's you and I would say you and I study in media, we have to for this show, you know, on, certain, on a certain level. You know, so my relationship is like, who's the person, you know, what kind of show is it? You know, who does he come off as? And I don't mean that in like a performative way, but like, what role is he playing? And I thought he breaks that down really well, comparing himself to what is Mehdi Hassan doing in MSNBC and recognizing that those shows and those kinds of interviews serve different purposes. And that was really great because I think that allows us all to recognize who you think you're seeing on television is playing a role on a particular show that has a particular goal in mind, not necessarily in terms of agenda, but stylistically. You know, is this supposed to be the last time we're ever going to talk to this person? So we really can be you know, far more inquisitive. Or is this the hopes of being able to really track and just journal this person's exploits, you know, for lack of a better phrase, you know, over a period of time? And and he really owns just the different places that people like him and Medi, you know, are coming from in terms of their respective roles that they play. So it's just enlightening. You know, on the book side, you know, I it was funny because that comedy made about that you know, often folks tend to gloss over the 1970s. And maybe it's because, um, you know, I always think, I mean, I was born in 78. So obviously the most famous thing that happens actually on my birthday, it's Jonestown, you know, the mass suicide, Kool-Aid and all that fun stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I've always been interested in like, well, what happened, you know, the year I was born, right? But the late 70s historically is a huge period for for journalism and for good or bad reasons. So it was it was interesting to him bring that back to the forefront of like that's actually a bigger period than we gave credit for. Um yeah, I, I just I just appreciate it. Obviously, good conversation as always, but it's yeah, just an interesting insight in you know why why write the story that he does, the different perspective that he does it from first person versus third person in the other books, and also combining all that with the person he is on television and the role he has to play. Yeah, I will echo what he said about he feels like he's the same off air versus on air. Thought he was great. And like I said, and I said it to him off air, I'll bring it over here for the final segment. If you're listening, Jake, truly, I love the work that you do and uh, invite Nick and I to be a panelist over at the lead. Nick knows education. I know the media space. So either way, uh, go get Jake's book out there. All the demons are here. If you want to watch the video portion of our interview with Jake, head to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. We should pop right up. You should see the interview with Jake Tapper there. And you can go watch the lead with Jake Tapper, like I mentioned, CNN, Monday through Friday, 4 p.m. And you can watch State of the Union Sundays at 9 a.m. Audio podcast platforms for our show. You know them by now. Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to everybody who listens to us on Good Pods. Shout out to ACAST, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. And we can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program. As always, I am Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Severi. We'll see everybody next time.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.